0: Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows by J.K. Rowling Chapter One The Dark Lord Ascending The two men appeared out of nowhere, a few yards apart in the narrow, moonlit lane. For a second they stood quite still, wands directed at each other's chest. Then, recognizing each other, they stowed their wands beneath their cloaks and started walking briskly in the same direction. News? asked the taller of the two. The best, replied Severus Snape. The lane was bordered on the left by wild, low gro- growling brambles on the right by a high, neatly manicured hedge. The men's long cloaks flapped around their ankles as they marched. Though thought I might be late, said Yaxley, his blunt features sliding in and out of sight as the branches overhanging trees broken, broke the moonlight. It was a little trickier than I expected, but I hope he will be satisfied. You sound confident that your reception will be good? Snape nodded, but he did not elaborate. They turned right into a wide driveway that led off the lane. The high hedge curved with them, running off into the distance beyond a pair of impressive wrought iron gates barring the men's way. Neither of them broke step. In silence, both raised their left arms in a kind of salute and passed straight through, as though the dark metal were smoke. The yew hedges muffled the sound of the men's footsteps. There was a rustle somewhere to their right. Yaxley drew his wand again, pointing it over his companion's head. The source of the noise proved to be nothing more than a pure white peacock, strutting majestically over the top of the hedge. He always did himself well, Lucius. Peacocks. Yaxley thrust his wand back under his cloak with a snort. A handsome manner. The house grew out of the darkness at the end of the straight drive, lights glinting in the diamond-panned downstairs window. Somewhere in the dark garden beyond a hedge, Fountain was playing. Ground... Gravel crackled beneath their feet as Snape and Yaxley sped toward the front door, which swung inward at their approach, though nobody had visibly opened it. The the hallway was large, dimly lit, and some... Sumptuously decorated, with a magnificent carpet covering most of the stone floor, the eyes of the pale-faced portraits, pale-faced portraits on the walls, followed Snape and Yaxi as they strode past. The two men halted at a heavy wooden door leading into the next room. Hesitated for the space of a heartbeat, then Snape turned the bronze handle. The drawing room was full of silent people sitting at a long and ornate table. The room's unusual furniture had been pushed carelessly up against the walls. Illumination came from a roaring fire beneath a handsome marble mantelpiece surmounted by a gl- gilding, gilded mirror. Snape and Yaxley lingered for a moment on the threshold. As their eyes grew accustomed to the lack of light, they were drawn upward to the strangest feature of the scene, an apparently unconscious "'Human, figure hanging upside down over the table, "'revolving slowly as if suspended by an invisible rope, "'and reflected in the mirror and in the bare polished surface of the table below. "'None of the people seated underneath this singular sight was looking at it, "'except for a pale young man sitting almost directly below it. "'He seemed unable to prevent himself from glancing upward every minute or so. "'Yaxley, Snape,' said a high, clear voice from the head of the table, "'you are very nearly late.' The speaker was seated, seated directly in front of the fireplace, so it was difficult at first for the new arrivals to make out more than his silhouette. As they drew nearer, however, his face shone through the gloom, hairless, snake-like, with slits for nostrils and gleaming red eyes whose people were vertical. He was so pale that he seemed to admit a pearly glow. Severus, here, said Voldemort, indicating the seat on his immediate right. Yaxley, besides Dolohov. The two men... Took their allotted places. Most of the eyes around the table followed Snape, and it was to him that Voldemort spoke first. So? My lord, the Order of the Phoenix intends to move Harry Potter from his current place of safety on Saturday next at nightfall. The interest around the table sharpened palpably. Some stiffened, others fidgeted, all gazing at Snape and Voldemort. Saturday at nightfall, repeated Voldemort. His red eyes fastened upon Snape's Snape's black ones with such intensity that some of the watchers looked away, apparently fearful that they themselves be be scorched in the ferocity of the gaze. Snape, however, looked calmly back into Voldemort's face, and after a moment or two, Voldemort's lipless mouth curved into something like a smile. Good. Very good. And this information comes... From the source we discussed, said Snape. My lord. Yaxley had leaned forward to look down the long table at Voldemort and Snape. All faces turned to him. My lord, I have heard differently. Yaxley waited, but Voldemort did not speak, so he went on. Dolish, the aura, let slip that Potter will not be moved until the 13th, the night before the boy turned 17. Snape was smiling. "'My source told me that there are plans to lay a false trail. "'This might be it. "'No doubt the confounded charm has been placed upon dollars. "'It would not be the first time. "'He is known to be susceptible.' "'I assure you, my lord, Dollish seemed quite certain,' said Yaxley. "'If he has been confounded, naturally he is certain,' said Snape. "'I assure you, Lex- Yaxley, the Oral Office will play no further part in the protection of Harry Potter. "'The Order believes that we have infiltrated the Ministry. "'The Order's got one thing right, then, eh?' said a squat man sitting a short distance from Yaxley. He gave a wheezy, wheezy, wheezy giggle that echoed, was echoed here and there along the table. Voldemort did not laugh. His gaze had wandered upward to the body revolving slowly overhead, and he seemed to be lost in thought. "'My lord,' Yaxley went on, "'Dolish believes that an entire party of auras will be used to transfer the boy.' Voldemort held up a large white hand, and Yaxley subsided at once." "'watching resentfully as Voldemort turned back to Snape. "'Where are they going to hide the boy next?' "'At the home of one of the Order,' said Snape. "'The place, according to the source, "'has been given every protection that the Order and Ministry together could provide. "'I think that there was little chance of taking him once he was there, my lord. "'Unless, of course, the Ministry is formed by next Saturday, "'which might give us the opportunity to discover and undo enough of the enchantments "'to break through the rest.' "'Well, Yaxley,' Voldemort called down the table, "'the firelight glinting strangely in his red eyes.' Will the ministry have fallen by next Saturday? Once again, all heads turned. Yaxley squared his shoulders. My lord, I have good news on that score. I have, with difficulty, and after great effort, succeeded in placing an imperious curse upon pious thickness. Many of those sitting around Yaxley looked impressed. His neighbor, Dolahov, a man with long, twisted face, clapped him on the back. It is a start, said Voldemort. But Dickney's is only one man. Scrimjaw must be surrounded by our people before I act. One failed attempt on the minister's life will send me battle back a long way. Yes, my lord, that is true. But you know, as head of the Department of Magical Law Enforcement, thicknees has regular contact not only with the minister himself, but also with the heads of all the other ministry departments. It will, I think, be easy now that we have such a high-ranking official under our control to subjugate the others and then they can all work together to bring Scrumjaw down. As long as as long as long our friend Thickness is not discovered before he has converted the rest, said Voldemort, at any rate, it remains unlikely that the ministry will be mine by before next Saturday. If we cannot touch the boy to the destination, then it must be done while he travels. We are in advantage there, my lord, said Yaxley, who seemed determined to receive some, of the, some portion of approval. We now have several people planted within the, dark, the Department of Magical Transportation. If Potter operates or uses the flu network, we shall know immediately. He will not do either, said Snape. The order is issuing any eschewing any form of transport that is controlled or regulated by the Ministry. They mistrust everything to do with the place. All the better, said Voldemort. He will have to move in the open. Easier to take, by far. Again Voldemort looked up at the slowly revolving body as he went on. I shall attend to the boy in person. There have been too many mistakes where Harry Potter is concerned. Some of them have been my own. The Potter li- that Potter lives is more due to my arrows than his arrows than his triumphs. The company around the table watched Voldemort more apprehensively. Each of them, by his or her expression, afraid that they might be blamed for Harry Potter's continued existence. Voldemort, however, seemed to be speaking more to himself than to any of them. Still addressing the unconscious body above him, I have been careless, and so have been thwarted by luck and chance. Those wreckers of all but the best-laid plans. I know better now. I understand those things that I did not understand before. I must be the one to kill Harry Potter, and I shall be. At these words, seemingly in response to them, a sudden wail sounded a terrible, drawn-out cry of misery and pain. Many of those at the table looked downward, startled, for the sound had seemed to issue from below their feet. Wormtail, said Voldemort with no change in his quiet, thoughtful tone, and without re- removing his eyes from the woven body above. "'Have I not spoken to you about keeping a prisoner quiet?' "'Yes, my lord," gasped a small man halfway down the table, who had been sitting so low in his chair that it appeared at first glance to be unoccupied. Now he scrambled from his seat and scurried from the room, leaving nothing behind him but a curious gleam of silver. "'As I was saying,' continued Voldemort, looking again at the tense faces of his followers, "'I understand better now. "'I shall need, for instance, to borrow a wand from one of you before I go kill Potter.' Faces around him displayed nothing but shock. He might have announced he was wanted to borrow one of their arms. No volunteers, said Voldemort. Let's see. Lucius, I see no need for you to have a wand anymore. Lucius Malfoy looked up. His skin appeared yellowish and waxy in the firelight, and his eyes were sunken and shadowed. When he spoke, his voice was hoarse. My lord, your wand, Lucius. I require your, your wand. I Malfoy glanced sideways at his wife. She was staring straight ahead, quite as pale as he was. Her long black... Blonde hair hanging down her back, but beneath the table, her slim fingers closed briefly on his wrist. At her touch, Malfoy put his hand into his robes, withdrew a wand, and passed it along to Voldemort, who held it up in front of his red eyes, examining it closely. What is it? "El, my lord, whispered Malfoy. In the core? Dragon. Dragon heartstring. Good, said Voldemort. He drew out his own wand and compared the lengths. Lucius Malfoy made an involuntary movement. For a fraction of a second, it seemed he expected to receive Voldemort's wand in exchange for his own. The gesture was not missed by Voldemort. His eyes widened maliciously. "'Give you my wand, Lucius? My wand?' some of the throng sniggered. "'I have given you your liberty, Lucius. Is that not enough for you?' "'But I have noticed that you and your family seem less and less happy of late.' "'What is it about my presence in your home that displeases you, Lucius?' "'Nothing, my lord.' Such lies, Lucius. The soft voice seemed to hiss on, even after the cruel mouth had stopped moving. One or two of the wizards barely repressed a shudder as the hissing grew louder. Something heavy could be heard sliding across the floor beneath the table. The huge snake emerged to climb slowly up Voldemort's chair. It rose seemingly endlessly and came to rest across Voldemort's shoulders. Its neck in the thickness of a man's thigh... Its eyes, with their vertical slits of pupils, unblinking. Voldemort, Voldemort stroked the creature absently with his long, thin fingers, still looking at Lucius Malfoy. Why do the Malfoys look so unhappy with their lot? Is my return, my rise to power, not the very thing they profess to desire for so many years. Of course, my lord, said Lucius, his hand shook as he wiped sweat from his upper lip. We did desire it. We do. From Voldemort and the snake to Malfoy's left, his wife made an odd, stiff nod, her eyes averted from Voldemort and the snake. To his right, his son Draco, who had been gazing up at the inert body overhead, glanced quickly at Voldemort and away again, terrified to make eye contact. "'My lord,' said a dark woman halfway down the table, her voice constricted with emotion. "'It is an honor to have you here in our family's house. There can be no higher pleasure.' She stepped her, beside her sister, as unlikely in her looks, with her dark hair and heavily lidded eyes, as she was bearing and demeanor. Where Narcissa sat rigid and passive, Bellatrix leaned towards Voldemort. For mere words could not demonstrate her longing for closeness. No higher pleasure, repeated Voldemort, his head tilted a little to one side as he considered bellatrix that means a great deal bellatrix from you her face flooded with color her eyes welled with tears of delight my lord knows i speak nothing but the truth no higher pleasure even compared with the happy event that i hear has taken place in your family this week she stared at him her lips parted eventually confused i don't know what you're talking what you mean my lord i'm talking about your niece bellatrix and yours lucius and Narcissa. She has just married the werewolf, Remus Lupin. You must be so proud. There was an eruption of jeering laughter from the t- around the table. Many l- leaned forward to exchange gleeful looks. A few thumped the table with their fists. The great snake, disliking the disturbance, opened its mouth wide and hissed angrily. But the Death Eaters did not hear it. So jubilant were they at Bellatrix mouth Malfoy's humiliation. Bellatrix's face, so recently flushed with happiness, and had turned an ugly blotchy red. She's no niece of ours, my lord," she cried, of the outpouring of mirth. "Me, we, Narcissa, and I had never set eyes on our sister since she married the mudblood. This brat has nothing to do with either of us, nor any beast she marries. What say you, Draco?" asked Voldemort. And through, though his voice was quiet, it carried clearly through the catcalls and ears. "Will you babysit the cubs?" The Hilarity Mountain. Draco Malfoy looked in terror at his father, who was staring down into his lap, own lap, and then caught his mother's eye. She shook her head almost imperceptibly, then resumed her own deadpan stare at the opposite wall. "Enough," said Voldemort, stroking the angry snake. "Enough." The laughter died at once. Many of our oldest family trees have become a little diseased over time," he said as Bellatrix gazed at him, breathless and imploring. You must prune yours, must you not? To keep it healthy, cut away those parts that threaten the help of the rest. Yes, my lord, whispered Bellatrix, and her eyes swam with tears of gratitude again at the first chant. You shall have it, said Voldemort, and in your family, so in the world. We shall cut away the canker that infects us only until those of true blood remain. Voldemort raised Lucius Malfoy's wand pointed it directly at the slow-rolling figure just spin it over the table and gave it a tiny flick. The the figure came to life with a groan and began to struggle against the invisible bonds. Do you recognize our guest, Severus? asked Voldemort. Snape raised his eyes to the upside-down face. All of the Death Eaters were looking up at the captive now, as though they had been given permission to show curiosity. As she revolved to face the firelight, the woman... Said in a cracked and terrified voice, "Severus, help me!" Ah, yes," said Snape as the prisoner turned slowly away again. "And you, Draco?" asked Voldemort, striking the snake's snout with his wand-free hand. Draco shook his head jerkily. Now that the woman had woken, he seemed unable to look at her any more. "But you would not have taken her classes," said Voldemort. "For those of you who do not know, we are joined here tonight by Charity Burbage, who until recently taught at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry." There were small noises of comprehension around the table. A broad, hunched woman with pointed teeth cackled. Yes, Professor Burbage taught the children of witches and wizards all about muggles. How they are not so different from us. One death eater spat on the floor. Charity Burbage revolved to face Nave again. Severus, please, please. Silence, said with another twitch of Malfoy's wand, and Charity fell silent as a gag, Not content with corrupting and polluting the minds of wizard children, last week Professor Burbage wrote an impassioned defense of mudbloods in the Daily Prophet. Wizards, she says, must accept these thieves of their knowledge and magic. The dwindling of the purebloods is, says Professor Burbage, a most desirable circumstance. She would have us all made with muggles, or no doubt, werewolves. Nobody laughed this time. There was no mistaking the anger and contempt in Voldemort's voice. For the third time, Charity Burbage revolved to face Snape. Tears were pouring from her eyes into her hair. Snape looked back at her, quite impassive, as she slowly turned away from him, him again. Avocadavra! A, the flash of green light illuminated every corner of the room. Charity fell with this resounding crash onto the table below, which trembled and creaked. Several of Death Eaters slipped back in their chairs. Drago fell out of his onto the floor dinner, Nagini, said Voldemort softly, and the great snake swayed and slithered from his shoulders to the polished wood.